The views and ideas expressed in the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is Gene Stone, 12 times New York Times bestselling author, and his new book is Trump Survival Guide, Everything You Need to Know About Living Through What You Hoped Would Never Happen. The stunning election results have rocked an already divided America and left scores of citizens, including the nearly 65 million voters who supported Hillary Clinton, feeling bereft and powerless. Gene Stone, number one Washington Post bestselling author of the Bush Survival Guide, offers guidance and concrete solutions we can use to make a difference, showing us how to move from anger and despair to activism. Uh, Gene Stone outlines the major social and political issues at stake for America, including civil rights, the economy, and national security. He's the author of over 40 books, uh, was senior editor of Esquire, West Coast editor of Simon & Schuster, and also at one time a consulting editor at the Los Angeles Times. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Gene. Thank you for having me. Well, okay, so, well, these are, as we've described it, troubling times for us, I guess, and you describe that as well in your book. Uh, Your book is here to help us and to address some of these issues that we're troubled about and that divide our country. And for those of us who want to do something, uh, to, uh, we're sort of, as I feel, in kind of a panic um, about a potentially maybe dangerous situation uh, when the president-elect becomes president, so... Uh, what do we do? I know you have uh, uh, very specific outlines in your book, but where do we start? Well, where we don't start is with panic and depression, because and, that's kind of what I felt that morning afterwards, like so many other people. Uh, and I thought, well, this is bad, and I probably spent the next week feeling the same way. But then I decided depression really isn't a starting place for action. And so as a writer, the one thing I know how to do is write, so I decided that I should write a book as quickly as possible. My publisher gave me 12 days to write the whole book from start to finish on the promise that they would have it out before Inauguration Day. And so what I did, I would like to think, is a little bit of a role model for other people. I just decided to do something. It's the one thing I know how to do is write. And what the book suggests is you, too, need to do something. Panic, depression, dejection. That's not going to get us anywhere. Doing something can actually affect change. And I guess the timing is right as well. As you said, you know, when you heard about uh, who won the election and you go through this kind of like uh, perhaps grief process and you need sort of time to grieve and maybe you need to time to, you know, as a social worker, you need to feel those emotions, but then you have to say, okay, now what am I going to do? And you have to be very specific about it. And I think people are just, yeah. Um, um, and I think it's people, really yeah, important that people do get specific, as you say. So the way the book works is I divided it into 12 different chapters. There are 12 issues that I personally felt were very important. There are certainly other issues that are not covered in the book. But these 12 issues are the ones I felt that people needed to think about. And then what I'm asking people to do is you can't really do anything about all 12 of them. 
but pick the one that means the most to you. If it's education or civil rights or Obamacare, whichever one matters most to you and your loved ones, make that your issue and do something. So you've given us these guidelines, and as you say, and I think it's important to reiterate, because sometimes I think one feels, oh, I have to do all of this. Uh, you know, I have to, like, if I've got 12 things here I should be doing, but you really need to pick the things you're best at and what you're interested in and what you're passionate about, and then go from there. And be very focused, I think. That's important as you go through the guidelines in your book. I want to, And I want to go through some of these. Um, which one would you say is the most important one to you? Oh, well, that's a good question, and um, nobody's asked me that before. Uh, I'm going to go with the environment. I'm one of those people who feels very strongly that uh, we want to give our grandchildren the most beautiful world possible, and the only way we can do that is by protecting the environment. I think Obama turned out to be quite a good president in terms of environmental action, and I worry very much that Trump could care less about the environment. And so in that particular chapter, I encourage people to donate or join the Wilderness Society or NRDC or any of the other very, very successful and um, um, in- intelligent environmental groups that are, um, that are out there now. All right, so you can... Go to these groups. They're out there. You have to know how to access them. Time and money, or just time, or just money, or both. You can do either one. Um, what would you say would be the most pressing issue, do you think, of most, I mean, this is kind of just, you know, this is maybe just a guess, of most Americans? What are they most concerned with? You're talking about climate change. I would put that at number one, but not everybody does. What What were some of the, what would you say would be the next or most, or would be one of the most popular issues that they're really concerned about, that Americans are concerned about, that at least half the population, voting population, is concerned about? Well, I, well, I think that the two issues that are in the book that are probably, if you had to rank them, would be the ones that concern most Americans, would be the economy and national security. All right, well, let's start with national security, because that, to me, is terrifying. Uh, just the word national security. I know you're not, well, you said in the beginning, let's not panic, let's not talk about chaos, and, of course, that's exactly what I'm saying. I'm terrified, which is not what we want. We don't want to be terrified. What do we do, and how do we, what can I do in terms of national security What as a lay person? Well, that's um, that's a, that's an issue, because uh, if we're talking about Obamacare, if we're talking about women's rights, there are so many more specific and local organizations you can join, donate to, volunteer for. There, there are very few local organizations that deal with national security. So of all of the chapters in the book, this one is probably the most difficult. So what I'm telling people to do is to try to educate yourselves as much as possible, um, as we all know, there's so much fake news and false news and Fox News out there right now that are providing information that is not accurate. So I list a number of um, research centers that I think are really good and can provide you with information to inform you as to what's going on. Um, but as far as, for instance, Trump's connections to Russia and Putin, 
we're not going to see his tax returns. We don't really know what they are. So this is a, a really, really difficult issue, and it's just simply one we have to track. And probably the only way we can really voice our concern is by voting people in office who oppose his policies. Well, you mentioned, as you're discussing this, this, this particular topic, fake news. Can we just get a little bit, how do we know what's fake news? How does the average person know what's fake news and what's not fake news? Or how do we try at least to assess what's fake and what's not? And we can't, every time we turn on our computers and are doing research, fact check everything, can we? No, we probably can't, but that's why it's really, really important to turn to the major sources of news, such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, CNN, uh, network news. I'm not a fan of these particularly. I think sometimes they um, abandon their journalistic standards. But nonetheless, I do think that in general, they try very hard to report the truth, even if occasionally they lapse. But there are also sites like Snopes.com and other places you can go online. If you hear a rumor that you think, well, is this really true? There are sites that will tell you whether it is true or not, and you need to trust those sites. Polifact, another place there, they do a really good job telling you whether or not this rumor is real or not. So we're really in a place now where there is so much information out there. Each one of us has to act as our own individual editor and sort out what is real and what isn't. So we need to have those websites sort of at our, you know, maybe five or even more websites at our fingertips that will help us to assess whether something, whether whether the news is true or not true. Uh, just become familiar. Um, I yeah. don't think there's ever been a time when each individual citizen of our country has to step up and take responsibility for their actions as a citizen. We, we live in a democracy, and... It's probably the best form of government in the world right now, but it only works if each one of us participates in it. So, I mean, you've written this book, obviously. Uh, that's a, a huge contribution in terms of what your contribution is. What, what are, and then once, the, the, you know, the book is out, now what? Now what, you, Gene Stone, because you're a leader, a writer, um, you've had all these different kinds of experiences, and, and actually in many different areas, and we can't go into all of them. So what are you going to do? What more are you going to do? Or is there anything more that you need to do? Well, I'm going to talk to people like you. <laughs> Today I'm doing 25 <laughs> radio interviews. I'm okay. trying to do as much as I can to spread the word. When that's done, because every book has a natural cycle, I will probably go to work for one of the environmental agencies, since I said that's the cause I think that concerns me the most. But um, there, there, there are so many other issues that we need to be aware of. So as we track the Trump administration, if let's just say, for instance, Trump turns out to be not so bad on the environment, but terrible on gay and lesbian rights, then I'll shift. I'll move over to another area. We all have to watch what he's doing and make sure that he doesn't get away with destroying something that is really valuable to us. This is not a time to tune out the media. It's not a time to tune out your responsibility. So I will certainly do what I can, and I just so much encourage everybody to do something. And again, I'm a writer, yeah, so I have a little more of a forum than most people. I'm very, very lucky to have that. 
But everybody has something they can do. Uh, if they just want to stuff envelopes, if they want to sign a petition, if they want to march, I don't care what it is somebody can do. Maybe they can have a bake sale to raise money for something. Maybe they can just have friends over for coffee to have a discussion. It doesn't matter, but people have to do something. Do you think people need a plan? Because you just mentioned something like it, you're right now you're working, you're concerned with the environment. But if things begin to change, and maybe that won't, maybe the president-elect will uh, do something or or about the environment, but not about gay and lesbian issues, and then you're going to shift. And I think shift is important. Maybe all of us kind of have to kind of reexamine how we've been involved in politics. Uh, maybe I'm making a big assumption, but you really have to be flexible, like you said, and be vigilant. And if something is appears to be maybe not so bad, but something else has really, you know, becomes the issue, we have to be able to shift our focus if if that if need be and we'll work on issues that become more salient is that what you're saying i think that's, a, that's exactly people, yeah um one, one of the um if, if there's a silver lining what i'm looking at and and hearing about is that um a lot of people who have been kind of asleep for the last eight years because they have felt confident that oh, president obama for more or less obviously he's not perfect but would more or less do the right thing, and they haven't been involved. The silver lining is I do think that many more people who haven't been doing anything for eight years are going to step up and are going to become involved. As you say, they're going to be more vigilant. They're going to be thinking about the issues that care, they care about, and they will become active in the country in a way that they haven't been for some time. Yeah, I think that's true. And I certainly was one of them. I think I always thought, well, you know, daddy will take care of it. I mean, he might not do, he's not perfect, but I trust him and he'll do okay and we'll be okay. And some, you know, and that's sort of, I think that was kind of the prevailing attitude with a lot of people, which of course is not true now. But Gene, let's get back to some of the specific things um, that we can do in specific areas. Now you say, um, Educate family and friends. Sometimes that can be the toughest thing to do because we get stuck in these kinds of like, I'm right, you're wrong, and that's it. When we're trying to educate, we end up getting into these uh, battles, these verbal or battles. So uh, how do we educate our family and friends in a way that's well, going to... Uh, I think that's, <laughs> as you point out, it can be very perilous because there can be these I'm right, you're wrong arguments that simply go nowhere one of the things that worries me the most about the country right now is as the right and the left begin to split and are so far apart, there isn't any more rational or calm discussion. Each side completely feels they're right and the other side is wrong. And the problem is that if that tendency keeps increasing, we end up in a situation where one side perhaps ends up as a dictatorship because they've completely shut out the other side. I am kind of, you know, I'm a liberal, but I'm a moderate liberal, and I don't think I'm right about every issue. I think there's some things, yeah, I feel very strongly about. But when you are talking to family and friends, I think you have to be respectful. You have to listen. You have to try to understand how that person came to their decision and, and do your best to find some kind of compromise. As I've been doing these radio interviews, I've certainly been talking to the people on the right. Some of them have not been 
willing to listen, but many of them have said, okay, yes, we all need to talk. And I think that is one of the most important things that we have to do in these next few years is maintain a civil conversation. Yeah, and maintaining a civil conversation is not easy, as we we just said in the beginning, but um, and how to do that. I mean, any creative ways for doing that? So, for instance, I mean, you, but you have a lot backing you. I mean, you're uh, an intellectual and a writer and well-known, and I can, you know, but most of us aren't, and when we're sitting there listening, we're just ready to counter, you know, counterpoint, counterpoint kind of thing. How do you sit back and listen to somebody who, and we are, I think we're getting more and more divided, it seems to me, whether in public, personal, family, even couples who, one's a Republican and one's a Democrat, begins to cause marital strife. So there has to be a way of being able to listen. And it may, there may be creative ways in different environments, whether it's in the family or whether it's at work, for instance. That's another example of where... You're you're, you're obviously quite right. Um, One one of the things that I try to do when I'm talking to people I know who do not agree with me is I first look for areas of agreement. There must be some place, somewhere, that we have opinions that um, that we share in common. And if you can start off trying to find points of agreement... Um, then you can bring a sense of shared understanding to the discussion before you go off into the places where you have nothing in common and you don't agree. But it's rare you find somebody you completely disagree with on every subject. So, as you say, listening is very important, but be creative and try to find something that the other person uh, has in common with you that you can agree on so you can at least start off in a pleasant place before, unfortunately, the conversation may take you elsewhere. Yeah, that's a great suggestion. I um, I think that's a good idea. It's almost like marriage counseling in a way when you get well, to you know, people. Well, you know, exactly what yeah. it is. And it, it is a form of counseling of two people who have different opinions who nonetheless we all have to live together. We don't have to marry each other, but we do live in the same country together. And would we rather have a country where everybody's constantly yelling and screaming at each other or a country that is a role model for polite civil discourse? Let's take another one, because uh, as a woman, I'm interested in women's issues, obviously, and not having those rights taken away from us. So well, this I is like one of the... Say, as a man, I'm interested in women's issues, too. You know, okay. I, I, one of the issues I sometimes find is that um, people want to say, well, you're not gay, so you can't be interested in gay issues, or you're not in education. Um, it's great that you're interested in women's issues, and I just would like men to think that they, too can be women interested in women's issues because it's really important. It's half the country, and we can't sit back and have women's rights be taken away by men. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I always have, uh, I uh, support the Pride Center in Albany, New York, the longest-running Pride Center, I think, in the country, and I got a huge award, uh, the straight but not the straight but not narrow award. So it goes along with what you're saying. And I'm always saying yay for me. And so I'll say yay for you. That's good. All right. So as a man who's also interested in women's issues, you say donate and use social media. So how do we do that? I mean, I know what you do to donate, but who do we donate to and how do we use social media? 
Well, as far as donating, there there are a number of terrific women's rights organizations, the National Organization for Women, um, or even just the League of Women's Voters to make sure that women are represented and able to vote. You know, it only was in the last century that women could vote at all. Um, or you go to Emily's List, which supports pro-choice Democrats for Congress. Again, the book lists a number of organizations you can do. Uh, you can join, or you can volunteer for, you can contribute to. Um, as far as social media goes, I, I think it's important that people, when they're on social media, also maintain that level of civil discourse. So if you're in some kind of a discussion and somebody starts to denigrate women or use language that you feel is inappropriate, I would encourage you to say something immediately, just as you would in real life. If you're at, if you're at work and somebody makes a terrible, sexist, cruel comment, you'd say something. Um, do so online, too. Um, social media has become such an important part of the fabric of our lives now we have to take it seriously, and again, we have to behave when we're on social media. Yeah, we do have to do that, and I think perhaps in the past where we've not said anything, just when we hear something that's, uh, well, you also talk about hate crimes and reporting hate crimes, and that kind of falls into the same area. You do have to say something now. It's really important to speak out. And it's never perhaps- been more important. As I say in, in the book, um, a hate crime that goes unreported isn't a hate crime as far as the world knows because nobody ever knows about it. You, you have to stand up. You have to say something. This isn't the time to be silent. And again, the silver lining in this election is I'm hoping that people will find their voices and speak up and make it clear that they're not going to stand for injustice or intolerance. Why do you think it's difficult for us to speak up? I mean, we are afraid. Maybe there's going to be a retaliation. I mean, there are some legitimate reasons. Uh, people who traditionally don't speak up, um, uh, don't have a podium for it or the support because they're afraid that they're, there'll be a backlash in terms of their families or their jobs, um, and, and so they don't say anything. Um, is that excusable? Hmm, that's, that's another really good issue. And uh, it's, as somebody has pointed out to me recently, it's easy for me to speak up because um, that's what I do for a living. I'm supposed to speak up. Everybody expects me to. If yeah, you're at work you and you're worried about your boss and your salary and your job, and yet you see something that you know is bad, but the issue is do you report it and then put yourself in jeopardy? These are not easy issues. And so what I'm trying to say to people is, Use your best judgment. Don't put yourself in jeopardy if somebody has got a gun to your head. Maybe that's not the best time to speak up. But it is a time to try to be brave. It is a time to do your best. And so there's no 100% answer for 100% of the people. You do have to be intelligent about speaking up. But... How do you feel if you don't speak up? How do you go to sleep at night knowing you saw something terrible or watched some violence that you might have been able to stop or report, and and you didn't say anything? It's time to think about your conscience as much as anything else. Yeah, I think that's true, and I, I think you have to, if you put the word responsibility in there and if you keep thinking about, this is really my responsibility as a as a citizen of this country, as a parent, uh, as someone who is a participant, it is my responsibility. And I think if you keep, for me anyway, if I keep 
thinking about that, that makes it easier for me when I'm in situations that I'm contemplating, should I say something or should I not say something? Well, it is my responsibility to say something. Say some, what is it? If see something, say something. That's what they say here. And, mm-hmm. and I think that you bring up a terrific point in terms of what does it mean to be a citizen of this country? And being a responsible citizen is probably the foremost requirement of a successful democracy. So we, we have to be responsible citizens. We have to make responsible choices. And if there's ever been a time to do that, it's right now. So given that, I mean, we, I just want to mention, obviously, your book again, because you can buy it Amazon bookstores everywhere. Uh, Gene Stone, Trump Survival Guide, Everything You Need to Know About Living Through What You Hoped Would Never Happen. I do have to say, when you read this book, it's so easy. It's really easy reading, and it's really a how-to book. I mean, you take us right through every not issue, not only pointing out the issues, but also how to address the issues and where we can get all the information. But where can we get more information about you? Because, like, you are a really interesting guy. You're always doing all kinds of things besides oh, writing. Yeah. Um, well, the, the Trump Survival Guide Dot com is a place where people can find out about the book, or they can go to my site, which is genestone.com. And, well, we have two more minutes left, so anything else that we should know about, not necessarily related to the, to the book you've written, but any other area that we can focus on or work with you or anything we've missed, say, during this interview that you can share with us? Well, you know, I did write this book, and it is... 200 pages, but really the whole book boils down to basically two words, and those two words are do something. It it is time for people to be as active and to participate in the democracy as much as they can. So basically, it's really just simply a message that says do something. I think doing something, uh, you know, after tomorrow, the doing something will take on a whole new meaning because we're not simply talking about a president-elect or an outgoing president. We're talking about a new, you know, Donald Trump will be the new president. And that's a whole different ball game, isn't it, from Uh Oh, it's not even a different ball game. It's a different sport. (laughs) It's a... (laughs) <laughs> All right, it's a different sport and a different ballpark, and it's a different game. So, uh, yeah, and, and take that very seriously. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Great. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, I really enjoyed it. And um, thank you for what you do, by the way. Um, I did some research on, on, on you, and, um, man, you, you've done some great things, too. So congratulations. Thank you. That's what social workers do. Yes, exactly. Uh, We're going to say goodbye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Tune in to the Voice America Variety Channel on the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Voice America Variety broadcasts a diverse array of topics reaching a global community. Our experts come from all walks of life, and the topics they discuss are everything from current events, arts and entertainment, leadership, parenting, relationships, self-improvement, career advice, and a variety of other topics. Check us out today. You're sure to find something of interest. Voice America Variety. Talk on today's hot topics. Are you finding your frequency? 
It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 2 p.m. Pacific Time, 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480 294 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. His new book is Malpractice. A neurosurgeon reveals how our healthcare system puts patients at risk. Most patients enter the healthcare system without any idea of the risks they face. Dr. Lawrence Schlachter attributes this to a medical culture that denies there is a patient safety problem. Drawing on 23 years of experience as a neurosurgeon and 11 years of experience as a medical malpractice attorney, Dr. Schlachter shares unbelievable but true stories of patients who were harmed by negligent doctors. Dr. Schlachter is one of the few attorneys in the United States who has a unique background combining dentistry, neurosurgery, and law with licenses to practice in each profession. Uh, Schlachter Law Firm in Atlanta, Georgia, is led by Dr. Lawrence Schlachter, attorney and board-certified neurological surgeon. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning. Good morning, and thank you. Well, interesting book, and uh, I think it's a topic that many of us don't like to talk about. I think that as a patient, not a doctor, not a lawyer, and uh, not a dentist either, but uh, we there's this kind of culture we need to see our doctor is all-knowing, and not only the doctor, but we need to see the healthcare system and whoever's treating us is to be all-knowing, and we trust them, and the profession perpetuates this. So let's start out with that, because I think that's how we kind of get into the system and how we uh, accept our treatment as patients. Do you, would you agree? Yes. Yeah. In, in the uh, typical doctor-patient relationship, there is tremendous trust. The, the patient is essentially scared, anxious, um, uh, you know, worried, and, and, and you know, if, if they're actually sick, you know, they're putting tremendous trust and confidence in the physician to be competent, 
to be careful, to consider all different parts of, of the story, the social part of the story, the medical part of the story, and to do the right thing for the patient and to be honest and transparent with what they do. That, that's how a typical person approaches a doctor. And it's really the doctor's obligation to do all those things for the patient. Now, being a doctor for most of my life and going through the, the rigors of you know, seven years of school and seven years of residency and postponing everything else in life to do that and then practicing you know, in a full-time practice working 90, 100 hours a week for, for decades, I, I am so supportive of, of the dedication of most of our physicians. But the culture in which physicians work, um, it changes the way doctors take care of things that go wrong and the way hospitals. There's a lot of pressures, financial pressures, political pressures, and so in the end, what happens is sometimes people don't get a fair shake. They, Let's talk about that. Pa- 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 oh, can we, I just want to kind of interrupt you here because patients sure, don't no get a, share, a fair shake because of the culture. Like you have a lot of examples in your book of, of this you know, kind of behavior. So specifically, can we kind of like describe a situation where patient doctor get caught up in this culture and patients really receive the the, the poor end of the stick uh, literally and serious uh, suffer serious consequences because of this culture give us examples um i have to pull cases out of my file and think of them so here's a good one um i think this situation is in the book. A a, a woman goes into the hospital with a severe headache that's been getting worse over a number of weeks. And they do a CT scan of her head, CAT scan of her head in the emergency room that is clearly abnormal, but the radiologist underreads it. He fails to appreciate the degree of swelling and edema and the pressure inside of the, the head. And he, and he reads it more like it's a chronic condition with, with changes in the brain. So the lady is admitted and, and an MRI scan is ordered. But, it, but it's Friday night. And, and the, in this hospital, in order to get an MRI scan over the weekend, the doctor has to make sure that he makes a phone call or two and pushes a few buttons and twists a few arms. But he didn't do that. They were going to wait till Monday because she looked about the same with her severe headache. The headache got progressively worse over the weekend. And on Monday morning, they didn't have her lined up to get her scan at, you know, eight in the morning. So over the weekend, there were consultations done by two neurologists who were in practice at this hospital. And they saw the patient and they were, they were not impressed with this woman with a headache. She didn't have any focal neurological signs. And, and what they did is they never went to look at the images themselves. They just relied on the radiologist. Now, wouldn't you think that a specialist, a neurologist, would actually pull the pictures up on the computer and look at them? How long does that take? Under five minutes? These guys, independently, on, on, on subsequent days, serial days, they never looked. So on Monday, the pressure in her head became so severe 
that she became unconscious and she herniated. And what was going on all this time is that she had an undiagnosed benign curable brain tumor that she needed surgery for, but she never got there because she died. It was too late. She went into a coma. Now, that's unbelievable, right? How could these two guys not look, just look at the pictures? So they actually defended themselves in a malpractice suit, saying that the standard of care allowed them to rely on the radiologist and not look at the images. And that's what happened. And a jury bought that. Now, to me, that's unacceptable. When you talk about standard of care, can you define that? Because, I, you know, obviously I've heard yeah. that term, as many others have, but when that is the defense, as you're saying, and I guess it's obviously a defense in a lot of malpractice case, that cases, the standard yes. of care. What does that mean? Yeah. Standard of care means what a reasonable and prudent doctor in similar and like circumstances would do. Um, in, my, in my book, I have a whole chapter on the elusive standard of care, because there's not a book that tells you what the standard of care is. It, it's what a reasonable and prudent doctor would do. And it's a national standard in most states. In other words, the standard in New York or Georgia or California would be the same. So a jury actually has to decide. See, experts, expert witnesses come into the trial and they... Uh, explain their opinions about what the standard of care is. So in my case, we had uh, expert witnesses, neurosurgeons, neurologists who came in and said, the standard of care requires a consultant, a specialist consultant, to actually look at the images and not rely on the radiologist. What the defense had was a professor from a major university come in and say, although we look at the images all the time at our university, in a private practice setting, um, it's not ideal care, but it's not below the standard of care. So that's a very interesting way to phrase this, which is, we don't do it. Maybe it's not the best care, but they weren't below the standard of care. So frequently, when you're in trials in cities, you're dealing with jurors who actually go to the same healthcare facilities that the defendants work at, and they don't really want to tag them with a verdict. So in this particular case, there was a combination, in my opinion, of politics, and uh, they were given enough to believe to, to let the doc off. They determined that the standard of care did not require the, the, the neurologists to look at the images themselves. I so, found that to be rather shocking. Yeah, Probably I find shocking. that shocking. <laughs> uh, but maybe it's not so shocking, given the statistics that, uh, in terms of malpractice cases that are, I guess, here in you know in the United States, um, the standard well, the, of care the way, seems the, to. Yeah, the, the, the way it works is when a case actually goes to trial, the doctor has an eighty to ninety percent chance of winning the case. They they tend to settle most cases that they think they might have risk or lose. 
When you talk about standard of care, and you were talking about in this particular private practice, it seems like there was a different standard of care than the other standard of care, you know, so they're arguing what the standard of care is. Do the condition, do the, for instance, is it the same standard of care? Let's say you're receiving cancer treatment. Does Memorial Sloan Kettering here in New York City have a standard of care that would be different than, say, if you went to a local um town or city hospital in a small town in Montana and they treated you there for the same problem is the standard of care the same is the requirement the same is the expectation the same well we all know that at a tertiary medical center like Sloan Kettering they have more to offer than a hospital in a smaller village or city in America wherever that is that's common knowledge. So the expectation would be that at a major medical center, they would have more to offer you. But if, but if the local hospital is capable of doing, you know, say 75% of what they do at Sloan Kettering, and that's within what they're, they're competent to deliver, the standard of care would be the same, such as, let's say, an infusion of, of a of a drug or chemical for the tumor, um, that probably could be done at any hospital in America the same way. And the standards of doing that infusion would be the same, the same reasonable standards. Um, and, and, and so, yes, the answer is the standard of care is the same for those things that they're capable of doing. What could the patient have done or the patient's family or whoever was uh, the support system for the patient in the example you gave the one who had the uh, yeah. benign tumor in her head. What, going back to that, okay, we, we understand, I, or somewhat, we understand what happened with the physicians, but now but what was with the patient? What could he or she, I guess it was a she, what could she have done? What could her support, could to prevent this from happening? Could they have been more, or is it their responsibility to be more aggressive, to get more information as a patient? Well, I, I I hope it's okay if I keep referring to the book because I... I, I yes, I, keep referring I, to the book. I, that's fine. I, I discuss in the book how patients and their families have to become shareholders in their own care. That you should never make the assumption that anything is happening unless you ask because maybe it isn't. Something, you know, so simple that you would think anybody would do it. So... Whenever a test is ordered, like in this case, an MRI scan, um, the family should ask, when is it going to happen? Why is it being delayed? What do you expect to find? Now, most patients and families are somewhat intimidated and, and don't want to upset the doctor, and they're afraid to ask questions. But my contention is that you really need to and you have to, to provide safety for your loved one. The, the patient frequently is not in any condition to ask these questions, but sometimes they are. But between the patient and friends and family, somebody's got to ask the doctor, what's going on? What are you doing? Why isn't the MRI scan done on Saturday or Sunday? Um, did you look at the CT scan in the emergency room? What do you think? Show me. Show me. You know, those kinds of things. You actually have to ask questions that a three-year-old would ask their parents, which is why? Why, why, why? 
Yeah, just okay. why, why, why? I always remember a radiologist yeah. friend of mine saying, you know, taking, uh, well, routine mammograms, for instance, and he always used to say to me, but know who's reading, who is, who's the radiologist who's reading the mammogram? I mean, it's not just taking the picture, but who's the guy or exactly. gal or, yeah. I don't think that most people ask that, or you know, if they're going to a clinic or they're going to a hospital where, or wherever uh, a woman gets a mammogram. Like, who is the person reading it, and how many people are reading it, and who came to this decision? I mean, there are so many, as you say, and in your book, those kinds of questions to ask that we don't ask. Well, when is the last time you got on a commercial airliner and saw the pilot sitting there in the cockpit and saying, excuse me, sir, how many hours of experience have you got flying this airplane? <laughs> you know? Right? So, so yeah. how many times do people say to their surgeon, uh, doctor, um, how many times have you done this operation? You know, that's a great question to ask. How many of these operations have you done in the last two years or five years? So, I think most so people are becoming other. more savvy to that, doctor. I think they, be, especially, you know, with the Internet, most people that I know who, you know, are going to have surgery or maybe have surgery do ask that question now. How many times, how often do you do this surgery? Oh, do they do it in this hospital very often? That's, I think that's becoming, which is a good thing, a more uh, uh, prevalent question that people do ask. I don't know if that's your experience, yeah. but I, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm very supportive of what you're saying because that's a wonderful thing to be happening because it will cut down on mistakes and errors and um, exposing a loved one to someone who's not experienced. You know, for, for a doctor to, to be able to do something, all you have to have is a medical license and credentialing from your hospital. And, and sometimes not even that. For example, at an outpatient surgical facility, there's very limited credentialing, especially if the practice owns the surgery center. So, like, I, I, there's another case that I discussed in the book about a woman with a particular kind of brain tumor, and her surgeon, who generally is a good doctor, had done this operation only one time in the previous 10 years, and within an hour's drive of the hospital, there were four university medical centers with centers of excellence where they do many of these surgeries on a regular basis. Who would you rather have doing your operation. But the Are you asking me? Never, <laughs> no, I'm just, just rhetorically uh, asking the yeah. question. So, so the, um, the patient and her husband never questioned the doctor. They just figured he was experienced. And the doctor actually never volunteered to them what his experience was. And he got lost during the surgery, and there was a terrible problem and injury, and she died. And it was, I, I think with someone more experienced, it would have been completely avoidable. So, so you know, these are, and, you know, they never actually told the family what happened. What about the Internet, though? People going online for not just major surgery, but for all kinds of, any kind of diagnoses, actually. Yeah. And then they go to their physician and they present uh, him or her with the information they have, and they get sort of like, uh, you know, put down for giving it. Well, you don't really understand it. You know, I, I, I know this, you know, I, they don't want to address the information that the patient brings to them. Yeah. What do you do, walk out, or do you have a discussion, or what do you do? One or the other. 
I, I, I think I think if if a physician or the nurse in the office is unwilling to have an honest conversation about what you're concerned about, you shouldn't be there. That should be a red flag. You know, e- e- either they're afraid to broach the subject with you, or they're just too busy to deal with you. And you might be better off in someone else's hands. But but you, you have to do the research because you have to know maybe you wouldn't be better off in someone else's hands also. Maybe that particular doctor has massive experience and he's just too busy to talk to you that day. But somebody has to address your legitimate concerns. And the yeah. Internet is a wonderful resource for people to get information, to read medical articles. So, so then the question is, is, you know, if a patient or family is not medically sophisticated, you know, it'd be like me or you going to, to an Air Force pilot and asking a technical question about an F-16, you know, <laughs> and flying it. And we, we really don't know what they're talking about. So, a, so a doctor always has to talk to a patient on a level at which they understand. There has to be enough respect to understand that the patient is asking a question that's legitimate and to, and to answer the question where they understand the answer. Well, in social work terms, you have to go where the patient... Right, people have a right to know, and as I say, in social work terms, you kind of, you, you... you talk to the patient or the client uh, where they're at. You start with where they're at, and I guess you know the same. That's what you're talking about, and and, and go from there. Yeah, you know, it's 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 folks like you who are in the social work field, who are in hospitals, who frequently act as advocates for the patient. You know, you you come by and you spend time with the patient, and you talk to them, and you learn what concerns them. And you say, why don't you ask the doctor the following questions? Or maybe you would go to the nurse on the floor and, and start the conversation up that way if there's a concern about something. But, yep. you know, it takes all sorts of concerned intermediaries in a hospital, social workers, physical therapists, nurses, physicians' assistants, nurse practitioners, everybody can participate and help the patient understand and maybe answer their questions, or at least uh, ring the doctor's bell and say, you need to go talk to this woman or, or man about what's going on. They have some serious questions. Yeah, it takes a team. It really does take a team. And I, I think it, especially it today with all, you know, specialized, very specialized areas of, of medical treatment. And, and I think that's what you're talking about, the team. My experience has been uh, a hospital social work. And I think, as you're implying, very often patients are intimidated by the physician, but not by the social worker. So you can get a lot of information to pass on to, well, it may be the the nurse, uh, or the RN, or it may be the physician. And uh, that really is important because patients are many times afraid to uh, talk to the do- the doctor. And, and and I would encourage people who are in the position of being a consumer or a patient. Um, as a patient, you don't want empathy as much as you want respect. And by respect, I mean you want the caring, but you also want a straight shooter who's going to tell you what's going on to treat you like a consumer that 
you know, like if you owned a store, you would treat a customer, you want them to come back. So you treat them with respect. Um, Important I, I, point, I, I because was, I think with the aging population, and maybe you can address this, we only have four minutes left, but with the aging population, people over 65, and there are a lot of people over 65 in our population who receive uh, medical care, there's a lot of like condescension to older patients. I always witness this in hospitals from calling, uh, particularly women, I have to say, deary and sweetie yeah. and don't worry yeah. about it, and all of the, the, that, that kind yes. of rhetoric, which is, yeah. Yes. Maybe you can address that. Yeah. You know, I, I, tur- I turned 65 three years ago, and, and well, I became one of those old guys. <laughs> <laughs> an old and, doctor, an old lawyer, and an old dentist. Yeah. So c- can I tell people about the book for a minute? Yes, go ahead. You've got three minutes. Yeah. I mean, we've been talking about yeah. the book. They have to read the book to really get the right. essence of it, but we've touched on I, the issues. I, yeah, go ahead. I just want to tell them where to get it. So, so okay. it's on Amazon.com, and you can order it in bookstores. It's called Malpractice. And uh, it came out about two weeks ago. Um, it's about 260 pages, and, and uh, it's, it's got a lot of chapters in it uh, about how I got where I am and the things I've been seeing. And a couple of months ago, Johns Hopkins came out with a study that showed that medical errors are the third leading cause of death behind heart disease and cancer, which is an astounding study. It means, it means that a lot of things are happening in hospitals and with medical care that need to be improved. Um, we need safety reform, not toward reform, is, is my position. And... We need to read the book to get the details of of that. We need safety reform. I, I couldn't agree with I mean, I, uh, you know, have, as I say, hospital social worker. I myself have only been in the hospital for three days in my life, so um, yeah. I've avoided some, <laughs> avoided some of this, I guess. Where, where, did you, where did you work in the hospitals? Which uh... I worked in New Jersey at a rehab hospital, uh, which had every kind of patient imaginable from... Uh, drug yeah. addiction to yeah, every stroke patients, the stroke patients absolutely long term care patients, al- just everything. Yeah. So yeah, and all, all yeah, of what and you talk about in the book uh, definitely well, are know, for, for, issues for, for all of us who have been through the system and have had to deal with the doctors and the hospitals. You know, they can be your best friends, or, or and sometimes you know it helps. Sometimes the doctors actually appreciate. The question, because it, it, it reminds them to do something that maybe they didn't do. Yeah, that's a good point. With 30 seconds, we have to say goodbye, but it, that's yeah. a good point to end on. Um, yeah. And uh, Lawrence Schlachter, DDS, MD, JD, neurosurgeon attorney, and his new book is Malpractice, a Neurosurgeon Reveals How Our Healthcare System Puts Patients at Risk. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. 
Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.